Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland, and for this episode today, we're doing something a little bit different because we're joined by two guests, Dr. Gavin Bunting and Dr. Matthew Davis, both from Swansea University's College of Engineering. Their work broadly focuses on the circular economy, the reuse of materials and products, and how this can contribute to solving some of the world's major challenges, like climate change and ocean plastics. Firstly, Gavin Bunting is Associate Professor of Engineering and Chair of the Circular Economy Research and Innovation Group for Wales. Nice to see you, Gavin. Welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank you. To start off, can we just go right back to the basics? Mm -hmm. And can you tell me what the circular economy is? Okay, so if I start by explaining kind of some of the kind of the the issues, uh, especially associated with waste. So at the moment, the UK produces 200 million tonnes of waste each year. A quarter of that goes to landfill. Okay, um, and also you may have come across the situation where, say, you you buy a you buy a printer. That printer needs fixing, and you go to take it to the shop to get fixed. The man's like, oh, well, you know, it's it's going to be cheaper to actually buy a new printer than mm. get it fixed. So things are kind of created in a way in which you're encouraged to buy something new rather than get them get them repaired. And then looking at the other side, you bought your new phone. A couple of years later, a new phone comes out. It's got better functionality. Your whole phone's slowing down a bit. Um, it's got a better camera on it. And so consumers are then encouraged to buy a whole new phone, whereas they don't necessarily need one. Either. The old phone kind of works perfectly fine, but that kind of fast innovation, companies are developing new things all the time and encouraging you to kind of buy the new, uh, the new item. So there's, there's kind of waste associated with kind of uh, things can be designed in a way in which they're not robust or through kind of fast innovation. So what we need to do with the circular economy, what we're aiming to do is designing products so that they're more durable, so they last longer, uh, so that they can be repaired and fixed when they do start to start to break, and, so that, and also upgrade it, perhaps uh, when you do kind of want that new functionality and something so that you can actually upgrade it. And then also, it's about them being able to kind of recycle those, those materials that are within those products at the end of life. So many products these days, there's kind of a whole mix of materials within them, especially electronic products. And when they're all grouped together, it's very hard to then separate them out at the end of the product's life and then recycle them. So the circular economy is really about designing products and thinking about how you can design those products to make sure that they are are more durable, are reusable. And so you're kind of maximizing uh, the use of kind of materials that are in in use, and you're then taking less materials from from kind of the, the earth. So discouraging the sort of throwaway culture. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the resources that we need are also becoming more and more scarce. So the resources for things like power generation, medical uh, devices, things like that for new cars and the batteries, they have those resources, a lot of them called critical raw raw materials, those are becoming more and more scarce. So we're should we kind of be using those resources as if they're kind of infinite? We should actually be thinking about the future and thinking about where we're going to get these resources from in the future and thinking, designing our products so we can get those resources back and not just putting them in landfill. With my historian's hat on, I think you know, there's probably something attractive here as well, isn't there, for people who quite like the idea of making do and mend and recycling mm. and using local things. So yeah. do you think you, know, you can tap into actually people's sort of sense of not wanting just to buy new rubbish stuff all the time. Yes, you know, that's an interesting point. I mean, yes, you talk to uh, the kind of 
previous generations and they say about, well, I had my washing machine for 30 years and I just took it down the, down the road to the local repairman to get it fixed whenever, whenever I needed to. And uh, whereas these days, it's interesting, companies are saying that the consumers aren't willing to kind of pay enough to actually have uh, uh, washing machines and things that do kind of last, last longer. Uh, and one of the things that we're encouraging through the circular economy is for people not necessarily to kind of own things so much. If a company rents you something, so if you say for a washing machine, for example, if they rent that washing machine to you, they lease it to you, the incentives then change. The company wants that machine to be robust because they still own it. They want it to be easy to repair because if it does break, then they've got, they've got the expense of actually repairing it. So they need to, so if you kind of change that business model, then you could change the incentives away. Because if a company's just selling something to you, they, they sell it to you, they hope they never see it again. And um, also they want you to buy a new model perhaps in three, four, five years, five years time. And I was going to ask about that because am I being too cynical to think that some modern products are almost designed to last just for a very short period of time. I think phones, you know, the early generation of mobile phones seemed like they could last forever, whereas now mm. it almost feels like once your two-year window is through or whatever, they begin to yeah. have faults or, or break. Or is that just me seeing things that aren't really there? There is this uh, situation of uh, kind of built-in obsolescence. Um, a lot of companies will kind of deny that they are, are doing that. But as you, as you kind of, a lot of people experience, yes, it gets to the end of the warranty period uh, with something and then it suddenly starts to slow down or break or things like that and so the consumer is then encouraged to buy the new uh, the new appliance the new phone or whatever whatever it is so it's difficult to kind of prove that that you know kind of that is happening but yes it is something that we all kind of experience with a lot of with a lot of products and that's with that kind of business model that linear business model if somebody sells you something they want that but they they also want then you to to buy the next model when they develop that so it's if you if you move that business model to more of a leasing one, then the company it changes. The company then has to think more long term. They've got more of a, a long term interest in uh, long term kind of revenue certainty coming in, and also uh, they can then think about well, we've got these resources out there. We're going to be getting them back in say five ten years time. What are we going to do with those resources? Can we use them in making kind of new new products? And we will come on to this idea of people being users, not consumers. Mm -hmm. But again, yeah. just going back to some of the basics, what are some of the really big issues that are driving this need to talk about a circular economy? I mean, I think I read about ocean plastics, for example. That's very, it's a very mm -hmm. hot topic at the moment, isn't it? Because it is something that people can physically see and they can yes. see that it's an issue. Yeah, so... Um and I think a lot of the, kind of the, the TV programmes such as Blue Planet and things like that have really kind of raised the the awareness of the kind of general public with the with regards to these issues and things like ocean plastic and that is a, a symptom of kind of uh, packaging and things like that which is designed kind of one-way packaging it's difficult to recycle and uh, I was only actually kind of teaching this yesterday in one of my lectures to do with uh, uh, plastics and how the UK government is kind of has uh, devised kind of legislation to, to encourage producers of plastics to kind of make it more recyclable and things like that and to try to try and encourage local kind of uh, industry uh, within the UK to develop more infrastructure so to, so to recycle plastics. But what has tended to happen is a lot of the kind of the waste plastics have been sent overseas and uh, uh, a lot of it kind of ended up in, in oceans and disposed of uh, incorrectly. But um, that has recently changed. So companies like China, not companies, so countries, sorry, like China, who were recently importing a lot of our plastics uh, 
about a year ago said actually they no longer want to import our our, our kind of waste plastics uh, it's no use to them they only want to import kind of what's called kind of high high quality plastics which they can recycle themselves and put into into products so there's now a more of a challenge for uk industry to develop more mechanisms to re- actually recycle things like things like plastics and i will mention china uh, again okay. shortly I, I think yeah but i've i've read about um the global we problem, mm-hmm. spelt with three E's. Yes. What's all this about? So that's waste. Uh, I always forget the acro- another acronym. <laughs> we deal with a lot of acronyms. Uh, yeah, so, so ac- basically it's, a waste, it's waste electronics uh, sure. and waste electronic devices. There's also, again, uh, with things as we were talking about earlier, like mobile phones and with the uh, situation that people are always upgrading their mobile phones roughly say every two to three years people are getting a new phone and things like that so then what happens to the old one sometimes they are then sold on to other consumers sometimes they're disposed of incorrectly uh and also because the the phones they 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 also incorporate a lot of what i was talking about earlier kind of critical raw materials raw materials which we know are going to be in short supply uh going going forwards so uh the development of new phones and things like that and new electronic devices you know should we be relying on those materials which are going to be in in short supply and also extracting those materials extracting all of those to recycle them at the end because it's they're in kind of such small amounts uh, within the electronic device it's actually really difficult to actually extract them and, and uh, recycle them at the at the end of life usually for electronic devices things like gold within them uh, that can be kind of fairly easily kind of extracted and it's kind of got a good value associated with it but the rest is actually fairly fairly difficult so there is a a difficulty there in actually um one getting the waste back from the consumer a lot of people also with things like phones and computers and things like that they tend to you know you've got your old phone you put it in the drawer you forget about it it's still there 10 years later um Whereas actually what we want to be doing is, is for companies to taking it back and kind of taking it apart and, and actually recycling, recycling those. One of the, interestingly, one of the issues associated with it is because electronic devices these days have a lot of data on them. So people are worried about that data going into, getting into the wrong hands. And so there's the, uh, the issue there of uh, giving consumers confidence in, be, in kind of sending their phone or computer, whatever it is, for recycling. Uh, and giving them confidence that actually their data is going to be secure. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. You've mentioned this idea about people um, becoming users rather than consumers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you have illustrated that. But can you just say a little bit more about this? Because people might be listening and thinking, what is the big difference actually between a, a user and a consumer? They are to some extent, they overlap, don't they? Yes, they do. Um, so if I give an example, so for example, uh, there's a company called Turn2. Um, they, kind of, uh, they, they were moving into some new offices and developing, and they were refurbishing some new, some new offices that they were going to be moving into. And as part of this, they needed to develop um, some, buy some lighting infrastructure for their, for their offices. And for, so what they said to Philips, kind of major lighting kind of manufacturer, they said, well, Actually, if what we want in our offices is light, we don't want to pay for the lighting infrastructure. Philips, you decide what, what lighting infrastructure we need. All we're going to pay you for every year is the light that you provide. Okay, so instead of turn to buying the lights and all the fittings and everything, they said to Philips, you, you, you provide it or we're just going to pay for the light. So Philips, they were then incentivized 
to actually minimize the amount of lighting infrastructure they put in. Okay, so they maximize the use of natural light. Also, Philips were going to be paying for the electricity in the lighting because the, because the company was just paying for literally light. So they, they made their lighting infrastructure more energy efficient. Also, they wanted to know that they could easily repair it. So they made sure that they could monitor all the, all the lighting infrastructure and see when it, could be, when it needed repairing quite easily and go, and go and easily kind of repair it as well. So moving, they moved there from the, the consumer the company turned to was it said now a, a user of the technology instead of just buying that technology in. And the, the um, uh, so Philips there were incentive those kind of incentives then changed for the customer. And it, those incentives often changed to, to being kind of more circular economy type of type incentives. Um, there are kind of uh, other examples um, as well. So, uh, so an easy one is car tires. So Michelin with their car tires, you can now pay per mile. Again, they're, they're now incentivized uh, because the customer is just paying for, for the, the, however many miles they travel on, the, on that tire. So the company is now incentivized for that, car, that tire to last as long as possible. Whereas previously, when they were selling the tire to you, of course, they want you to buy a new tire in, say, three, four uh, years' time or three, three four, five thousand miles' time. Mm. Um, whereas actually, if they're, if they're re- leasing you that tire, then they want it to last as long as possible. So the, that, those incentives change, and those incentives change to being kind of more circular. So they want the products to be kind of more durable. Who is incentivizing these companies? Is it government? Is it coming from central government who are legislating for this sort of stuff? Um, so central government do provide some uh, sort of incentives and, and legislation. So things that surrounding kind of like, like packaging. That's one of the things that government's doing at the moment. It's recently consulted on how they can encourage producers to develop packaging that can be more easily recycled. And uh, effectively, there would be a, uh, a fee for companies that, that, that produce packaging that, isn't, uh, that can't be kind of easily, easily recycled. Uh, one of the things that uh, I chair, the, as you mentioned earlier, chair the Circular Economy Research and Innovation Group, we, we provide a response to government on this and actually said that they, they also need to think about how we encourage uh, producers to produce packaging that can be easily re- reused rather than recycled. Because one of the things is that you've got the, the waste hierarchy. So um, uh, uh, the people often think about when they think about minimizing waste is they often think about recycling. Okay, It's actually that's fairly kind of far down the waste hierarchy. Um, what you want to do, first of all, is encourage uh, people to reuse products. And then after reuse, you want them to kind of be able to kind of refurbish them and say remanufacture them. and then if you can no longer do those two, then you move to recycling because it's more energy efficient and you use kind of less energy and materials in reusing, uh, reusing something than you do to kind of recycling something because a lot of energy in actually, um, in actually recycling. If, if we're trying to discourage consumption, mm-hmm. might critics say that less consumption means potentially less wealth creation? And less wealth creation means that you are a less strong country and economy, and then you have less ability to actually try and mitigate some of the problems that you've outlined. I know that's a multi-step thought <laughs> yes, process. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean about consumption, and there's you know there's been some interesting work when I was at the Sustainable Development Commission. We were looking at this. Uh, can you get? It's a report by um, Professor Tim Jackson of uh, Surrey University, actually, looking at uh, called prosperity without growth. So, can, do we, when we're thinking about these kind of 
we've got actually got finite resources on the planet. Do we can we continue growing and using kind of these these finite resources almost in an infinite manner? No, we can't. So we do need to think about actually can we do we need to continually be growing and continually consuming more? And circular economy isn't isn't about stopping con- consumption. It's it's recognizing that we still need to consume things, but it's actually making sure that the things that we do consume just don't end up at landfill at the end. They stay within the um, kind of within with consumers. They stay within that kind of cycle of use rather than just being disposed of in a landfill and kind of forgotten about. So many kind of waste resources there, and as People are talking about well, in the future, will we have to mine landfill sites for our resources because we're sending so much of our resources to to those? So it's about just keeping things in use for as long as possible and being kind of more clever with our consumption. And it's hopefully it wouldn't lead to a, a um, you know kind of a worse quality of life. Actually, it's thinking about one that, and it's always a difficult thing. It's about thinking about future generations and what are we kind of leaving for those kind of future generations if we consume things now. Then what are what are we providing for our future generations? Mm. We're we're effectively di- diminishing the resources that are available to them. But that takes a kind of a an altruistic kind of mindset to kind of to think about that. Yes, because I'm just thinking in terms of very basic economic models. If people don't necessarily consume and buy, mm. then people aren't incentivized to produce in the first place. And then if mm-hmm. people aren't producing, people maybe are not working. Mm-hmm. There is this yeah. danger, isn't there, that actually economies might slow down. So, but that's where, so as I talked about earlier, instead of moving, moving from this, uh, from being a consumer to a user, so you still, you still got kind of the money flowing through the economy and people are still consuming things, um, but you're just keeping the resources flowing in that kind of circular way. Okay. So you're just generating less kind of waste in the economy. So it's, uh, I, I'd argue that we're not necessarily consuming less, we're consuming perhaps different things and, uh, Consuming things which are, which are better for the environment. Who does very good work in this field out there, apart from obviously academics <laughs> <laughs> working um, hard? But maybe you know uh, groups of people, governments, yeah. companies. Mm-hmm. So the, well, there's one organisation called the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So if an, anybody that's listening to this is interested in the circular economy, that's got fantastic resources on it and has, has done a lot of work in this uh, in this area. Um, so the the person behind it, Ellen MacArthur, um, a, a famous kind of round the world kind of yachts woman, and uh, she found that through sailing around the world, one she noticed the kind of the amount of waste that was in the oceans and and things like that, but also recognised that living on a on a yacht for all that time when she's sailing around the world, that you you do have to think about how you use things carefully and how you use your resources carefully and how you do need to kind of reuse things and things need to be durable and things like that so that when she kind of came ended that career she kind of set up uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation to to work with universities and work with governments and businesses etc to uh, look at how we can uh, encourage people and companies to take um, uh, to consider uh, and look at kind of circular economy business models and there are kind of businesses that are also um, you know looking at this as well, it's kind of in its early stages, and you know a lot of businesses are kind of trialing kind of different different options. Um, so, an example, an example I've given some examples already, but one example kind of from a more engineering point of view is so. Think of Caterpillar; they manufacture the kind of the big kind of machine, the kind of uh, diggers and machines for 
mining and things like that. So they got huge engines in them. And one of the things that they were looking at is, okay, so how can we take those engines back at the end of life and refurbish them and remanufacture them and then put them back in a new, uh, a new Caterpillar uh, truck or whatever? So what they found is that, okay, when they were first of all taking their engines back, they were having to effectively kind of rebore one of the, the cylinders in the, in the engines. And they could only do that a finite amount of times before they could no longer do that and the engine just had to be kind of thrown away and recycled. So what they did, they went back to the design stage and thought, well, actually, it's the cylinder that has to be uh, reboard each time. That's the bit that's kind of wearing out every time that we take the engine back. So what they did is they designed a removable sleeve that now goes in the engines. So effectively, they get the engine back, they take out that removable sleeve, and they don't have to rebore the cylinder. They, they clean up the rest of the engine, they make sure it's in good working condition, and then they sell it back to uh, the consumer in... Uh, and sort of an as new condition with the same warranty as a as a new engine. So what they did is they go, went back to the design stage and thought about how they could redesign their engine so that it could be reused, uh, reused many many times. And then because they know that they want to get engines back in good condition, they also start to think, well, we need to monitor our engines when they're in use. So they've now got monitoring devices on, on all their engines. They can see whether they're being used appropriately um, by the uh, the kind of the, the consumer of their uh, trucks and diggers and, and things. And they can effectively tell the customer, actually, you need to bring your engine in for a service and things like that when it looks like it's about to go wrong. So that they then also know that they're going to get a good quality engine when it comes back at the, at the end of life as well. We talk quite a lot about the uh, big companies, but surely mm. individuals are important mm. here as well, aren't they? And individual yeah. behavior is very important. So yeah. what can people do um, to make a difference, I guess. Okay, so I think one of the things is thinking about when you do buy something, you know, is the product, that you, first of all, do you, do you need the product that you're, you, are, you are buying? Can the product uh, be recycled at the, at the end, of its, end of its life? Uh, uh, is there lots of products that will have the kind of little triangle on them and they'll show kind of what, the, what that kind of product is made of and think about whether that product can be recycled at the, at the end of life. Can that product be easily repaired and upgraded? And it's thinking kind of more clever about, okay, um, is the product that I'm buying going to last me kind of the, the number of years that, that I, kind of, I need it to last? We were talking about mobile phones earlier and there's a manufacturer of mobile phones uh, now called, uh, called Fairphone, which where you can actually upgrade it, take it apart, put in a new camera, put in a new battery, all, all yourself. Uh, but, and they've designed it so that it's very easy for the consumer to do that. So perhaps if you're thinking you know, of your, of your um, electronic devices and things like that, thinking about actually, is it, is it better for me to, to buy something where I can't upgrade it or repair it when it, when it, uh, when it starts kind of breaking down or it gets to the end of its life? Or, or should I be buying something else that's, uh, uh, which I can repair? If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. And many conscientious people will, will really be keen on your message. Mm. But I think we also know that there's lots of people out there who won't be particularly receptive to all of this. And if they still can throw things in landfill, mm -hmm. they will. Mm -hmm. How, without sort of being quite uh, proactive in 
people's lives, mm-hmm. do you change behavior? That's a that's a really interesting point. Um, one of the things I I believe is that it needs to it needs to be kind of citizen centered and kind of citizen easy, effectively. So uh, it needs to be easy for the consumer to uh, take their kind of sustainable option. Um, I always think of transport as an example for the, for this. Uh, you might encourage people to take public transport. Um, it reduces emissions. Uh, better than better take public transport than the car. If when you take public transport, it's really difficult, the train's late, the bus is late, it takes you an hour longer than it would have done by car, you're not going to do it again. So it needs to be, the infrastructure needs to be there and it needs to be easy for the, for the citizen, citizen to be able to do so. And it's the same with products and thinking about kind of circular economy as well. People don't necessarily want to pay kind of much more for a product that's, that is more circular. And it also be, needs to be easy for them to be able to kind of find that product and choose the choose the right uh, choose the right product. So things such as kind of easier perhaps labeling on products, so it makes it easier for the for the customer and the, the everyday person to to select the more sustainable, more kind of circular product uh, when they're when they're kind of doing their shopping. That needs to be you know that needs to be incorporated. And also, government can provide the the legislation to encourage the producers and the manufacturers. To actually to produce products that are um, that are kind of circular and and uh, and sustainable. So people shouldn't be, uh, as it were, punished for in inverted commas bad behaviour. Um, I think there needs to be, perhaps can be some incentives. You look at, look at the moments. So uh, an easy thing at the moment is say uh, I know we're doing it in the university. The, the university coffee shop has started a twenty five p charge if you're I discovered using, this this morning. <laughs> yes, <laughs> using the, uh, using a um, a throwaway coffee cup. Um, so there can be incentives put in put in place to encourage consumers, and so a good example is the the five p carrier bag charge, uh, which was started in Wales, and that has seen a reduction in the amount of people that are using throwaway carrier bags and people who are using more kind of reusable ones uh, now. So by putting in kind of small charges and um, incentives, really uh, can t- help change people's behaviour as long as there's a good inter- alternative in place. So there's no point charging for a 25p coffee cup if they don't then have the option of a reasonable value, uh, reusable coffee uh, coffee cup there. Small carrots and small sticks. Yes, yeah, yeah. Thinking back to globally now as well, mm. you know, lots of people, companies and individuals can change their behaviour in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's not going to make much of a difference though, is it, if some of the, uh, the bigger economies, and I'm thinking particularly uh, India, Mm-hmm. China, mm-hmm. the US, even don't mm-hmm. follow suit. Okay. Um, so because I, 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 I'm, I'm aware that you mentioned about China being quite receptive to plastics and things like that. Yeah. But that could just be sort of warm words, couldn't it? So, so one of the things to first of all think about is okay. So the more kind of developed economies, such as such as the UK, um, where do we? Buy most of our goods. Where are most of our goods manufactured? A lot of it in China. Okay, so in, indirectly, we're responsible for a lot of the kind of emissions and the waste associated with the manufacturing of those goods in in China. So we need to perhaps think about okay, if we can put more pressure on, okay, we want kind of sustainable, kind of circular goods that are produced. So that puts uh, pressure on the manufacturers wherever they're based globally, whether it's China, India. Uh, US, etc. 
encourages them to think about, okay, we need to develop more kind of sustainable and circular approaches to our, our manufacture of goods. And also, um, China's got a large population. Yes, it does have kind of large emissions, but it also has a large population. And their per capita emissions, so the emissions per head of population, are actually very low. Okay, so it's still, there's still a large number of people that, uh, that, uh, that are kind of effectively on a low wage and they don't consume much. Um, whereas actually the per capita emissions of people in the UK, Europe, US are actually st are pretty high still. So we're, we're the ones that are still consuming and the, the ones that are responsible for, for the majority of emissions. So um, to encourage countries like the US, the current kind of um, administration in the, in the US perhaps isn't into climate change as, as much, but interestingly in the, in the US, there's a lot of power at the state level. So states such as California, New York, uh, are saying, well, actually, we want to uh, meet things like the Paris climate change targets. We want to reduce our emissions. We, we want to address climate change. And they do actually have a lot of power to do so at the state level. And some of those states such as California have got economies which are the size of, of small countries. So um, there, is a, there is a lot that can be done. And I went to, um, to the US uh, about sort of five years ago now as part of... Uh, uh, an energy and climate change um, uh, delegation selected by the U.S. Embassy in London to go over and come meet uh, politicians and uh, and people working on energy and climate change in the U.S. And it was actually really good to see that actually there's a lot of uh, work going on out there to address to address climate change and to take forward um, policies which which address some of the global challenges that we're that we're looking at. Gavin, that was a useful overview of the topic. I know we're going to explore it in more depth uh, shortly with your colleague, but for you, for now, thank you, uh, Dr. Gavin Bunting. Okay, Thanks. thank you. We're now joined by Matthew Davis, who is also an Associate Professor in Engineering here at Swansea University and uh, an Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council Innovation Fellow. Matthew, welcome. It's good to see you too. Thank you very much. Now, we're going to talk in more specific terms about your actual research, um, kind of applying some of the stuff that Gavin has told us. So can you tell us what you work on? Of course. Um, so I'm working on the sort of next generation of solar energy technology, if you like. Um, so what we're hoping to develop is low cost and low embodied energy solar panels. So panels you can put on your roof. Um, they may be flexible and lightweight and things like this that we can print over a very large area. Um, and deploy. So th this is to help meet the obvious renewable energy needs of the world, um, plus to have less material usage and to develop some advantages over more traditional silicon-based um, existing photovoltaics. And how good is solar energy at the moment? How reliable is it? What sort of stage are we at? Um, so solar energy is definitely the the future is the way we need to move towards. Silicon photovoltaics are excellent. Um, the historical problems were around cost. The cost of the technology has plummeted. It's become very, very cheap. Um, it can actually, in parts of the world, be competitive uh, and cheaper than traditional um, energy producing methods such as um, power stations and, and, and using coal and things like this. So it's a cheaper form of energy. Um, it's renewable. What I'm trying to do in my research is to make that renewable also sustainable. So they don't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, so silicon photovoltaics, for example, 
they're currently being deployed and, and deployment is increasing because of that lowering of cost. Um, by 2050, it's estimated there'll be over 60 million tons of waste silicon panels as they reach end of life. Um, so what are we going to do with that waste? We can recycle it, of course, and it will have to be recycled under, under legislation. But the materials value isn't particularly high. Um, what we could do is remanufacture it into new silicon panels, and that develops uh, around an estimated benefit of $15 billion to the economy, and it also produces jobs. So I think this is where circular economy and photovoltaics need to go hand in hand. We need to develop new industries, new jobs, um, to power the re-sort of manufacture of technology. And we will come on to talk about this idea that even with renewable energies, there are problems associated with it, with things like waste. But again, just taking us back to, to basics, how does solar energy work and how can you or we make it work better? Okay, so um, a, a solar cell needs to do three things that generate electricity. We need a light-absorbing material. So photo in photovoltaics obviously means light. So first we need to absorb light. Once that light is absorbed, that creates uh, what we call an excited state or an excited state electron. Um, an electron is electrical current. That's, that's what powers devices and things like that. So we get light absorption. It creates an excited state. We now need to separate this charge and extract it from a device. They're the three simple functions of a solar cell. So we need to develop materials that do this very efficiently and that absorb light very well so we can make very thin layers, uh, which enable us to reduce materials costs and usage up front, if you like. How do you store the energy? Uh, so, so that's a big problem with uh, the development of renewables at the moment. Battery technology is accelerating. Um, we need uh, lots of chemists to come up with new battery technologies, and we do need developments there. One of one of the problems um, I foresee with renewable technology in general is the elements that we need to achieve a renewable future, if you want, uh, if you like. A lot of these technologies require similar elements. So um, what we need, and I, I know Gavin spoke about critical raw materials, um, we need to make sure we have a whole picture approach of these technologies. So it's all well and good saying we'll have solar in the future, we'll have batteries in the future, we'll have wind farms in the future. But actually, they all require similar elements. And if we run out of these elements, then we won't be able to um, have all of this technology available to meet um, the targets of climate change and things like this. So we have to be very careful how we use materials. Just sticking with the solar energy for a moment, when I think of solar energy, I see panels, you know, a couple of panels on the top of people's houses or maybe a solar farm in a, in a field somewhere. Is that what we're talking about when we think of solar energy or is the technology moving on and developing further away from that sort of stuff? Okay, so, so we're looking at developing sort of printed panels that can be integrated into buildings. What we would like to see is a future where we have buildings that can generate, store and release electricity at the point of use. Um, so not necessarily in a grid, but um, or it can feed into a grid, but we generate, store and release electricity where we use it and we have smarter systems to do that. So this requires photovoltaics that can be incorporated uh, into the roofing material, for example, um, as sort of one, one panel. So maybe Tata Steel will sell steel that already has a photovoltaic panel incorporated um, and that can be used to build the many Amazons and Ikeas and Tesco's 
um, around the UK and things like this. So we can develop flexible photovoltaics. We can develop um, photovoltaics with an aesthetic appeal where we can tune color. Um, we can develop photovoltaic windows, for example. And I know NSG Glass, a major glass uh, company, have photovoltaic um, windows as a product. So these are all the sort of technology mixes we need to put in to a building. We also need low energy um, technology in terms of usage, so low energy lighting, heating, etc. So what we would like to do is print photovoltaics like newspapers at a very similar rate, very large area, very low co cost, that are flexible, can be installed easily, and things like this. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. This sounds remarkable. You can almost have buildings in themselves generating renewable energy. It sounds like a, like a hugely positive step forward, but there must be huge challenges with it too. Uh, of course there are. Uh, and um, so, yes, buildings at the moment contribute around a fifth towards global emissions. So it's a problem that we need need to address. So all new buildings should incorporate renewable energy technology uh, and be what we call energy positive. So we want to design buildings so they release more energy over a year than they use. Um, this is possible with existing technology. We can do this now. We do it at Swansea University. So we've built buildings on the campus that are energy positive. Um, we have a major project at the moment in Swansea University called the Active Building Center. And that is going to look at developing um, active buildings around the UK that are energy positive. So this is, this is a possibility and a reality at the moment. Um, we need an acceleration in technology. We need smart systems of integration. We need different mixes of technology. Um, what's important with renewables and then specifically photovoltaics is that we get a mix. So we, we have a mix of energy needs and different photovoltaic materials and technologies are good at different things. So for example, silicon, which has been a technology um, that people will be familiar with and it's the technology you see on houses, that's great for roofs. Um, but what about if we want to power things indoor? Well, we can create photovoltaic devices that work on indoor light and can power small, smart electronic materials, uh, uh, things like monitoring systems to control temperature. And that feeds into the, the energy um, intelligence, if you like, of a building. And so this is your day-to-day -day work and research here at Swansea. This is what it focuses on? So uh, my, um, I'm a photochemist, so I, I look at quite... Uh, fundamental research into how a solar cell works, if you like, how electrons move within devices and things like that. Um, but I'm also looking at developing sustainable photovoltaics. So at the moment, um, like, like I said earlier, um, what we need to do is develop sustainable renewables. So renewables is a great first step, but now we need sustainable renewables. So we need to use earth-abundant materials, things that we're not going to run out of. We need to use materials that we can remanufacture, and that comes into design now. So if we can select materials based on how easy they are to remanufacture at end of life, we can change our way of thinking about photovoltaics and, and the way we use materials within them. We need to use low toxicity materials, of course, so we should use things that are fairly cheap to manufacture. So if we use toxic elements, they become more difficult to control both in manufacture and and in usage in the world. Um, so my research then will look at using the sort of fundamental advanced 
characterization in my lab, but to inform sustainability, to inform how many times we can remanufacture new technologies and still get working devices. Um, why one solvent system may work um, and a greener solvent system may not work as well. And as soon as we understand that, we can develop better systems for the next generation of photovoltaic technology. What might an example of an unsustainable renewable energy be? Okay, so, so for example, um, for a solar cell, what you need is a conductive surface to start, um, which will allow electrons and that electrical charge to move along a surface. Um, a, a commonly used um, conductive layer contains indium, it's indium doped tin oxide. Indium is in incredibly rare, and it's actually what you use in touchscreens, displays, iPhones, things, things like the iPad. Um, solar cells probably can't compete with mobile phone technology for usage of this material. Plus, there's not enough on the planet to make the amount of solar cells we need to mitigate climate change. So we need to look for solutions around other materials and replacing indium as a conductive material in our solar panels. And I guess that could be applied to the entire energy sector if you actually broadened out your idea. I and mean, I think I read once about how wind farms are, you know, they have a relatively short lifespan, but actually it takes a lot of energy to actually produce one of these turbines. And they've got huge concrete foundations, which often need coal-fired power station energy to, to, to create. So yeah, it's a, your, your research feeds into a bigger debate here, I assume. Yes, uh, what we need is renewable technology that has um, low embodied energy. So we take the amount of energy that goes into making the technology, and then um, we work out how long it will take to pay back that energy. So for silicon photovoltaics, that's a couple of years. Uh, for the printed photovoltaics we're looking at developing, it'll be less than six months. So very low energy manufacture. I know you've mentioned this already, but obviously this ties in with quite a lot of what Gavin was saying about the circular economy. Is there anything you'd like to add to what he said that you know, ties in with your research? Um, well, I, I think uh, the circular economy um, is adopting a circular economy is the only way we are actually going to reach our climate change targets. So if we want to prevent this one and a half degree rise in temperature of our planets, we need to adopt um, renewable energy and circular economy um, so i think it's around 60 percent or just over 60 percent of global emissions currently um, are due to mining making and producing materials so not in usage but just making new stuff um, and over we we make annually around 90 gigatons of materials we currently recycle only 9% of that material. So we're making more and more stuff, mining more and more things out of the earth that we just have a finite amount of. So we need to look at our materials usage um, and recycling and circling materials within the economy. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to develop the technology we need to mitigate climate change. Um, and we're going to accelerate well beyond these sort of targets of the Paris Agreement. And your perspective on the point I put to Gavin about how we can make big changes in this area in the UK, but it'll just be a drop in the ocean if some of the developing countries in the world don't change their habits, which um, they are unlikely to. Yeah, I think this is an interesting point. I mean, there's multiple arguments you can make. We should, we should of course, um, do the right thing, I believe. Um, but also, early adopters of 
new technologies and new systems are often the ones that reap the rewards. So new adopters of circular economy are set to have market share. And this isn't about slowing down our economy. This is about making jobs and future-proofing ourselves as well. So if you think of the UK manufacturing sector, what we want is the next generation of photovoltaics, for example, to be manufactured in the UK. The way we're going to do that is through innovation. So if we can design solar cells, for example, where we've planned for end of life, we've planned for remanufacture, we've planned for recycling, then we control the innovation of recycling and remanufacture, and we will have manufacturing here in the UK. That also um, puts less demand on our supply chain. It means that we don't need to import critical raw materials from countries around the world, and we control our own supply. So it's just that decoupling of risk, if you like, in the supply chain, which we need to achieve. Let's talk about you for a moment. Uh, what brought you here to do this sort of research? What's your background? Um, so I studied chemistry in Swansea University, um, undergrad, and then uh, moved to to Portugal. So I did a my PhD was a joint um, PhD between Queenborough University in Portugal and Swansea University. Um, my research then was focused on photochemistry, but photochemistry of polymers and how they interact with DNA, so a completely different subject um, matter. Then I started um, following on from my PhD. I started working on dye-sensitized solar cells, so a, a third-generation solar cell technology, um, which uses earth-abundant materials and things like this. And I think just the, the idea and the importance of renewable energy um, technology and developing solutions um, that can help mitigate the risks that we face as uh, as a species is is a huge driver in my research. And since doing that work and part of it in Coimbra in Portugal, uh, where has this taken you? Because it must have you know your your research is global and mm -hmm. it's focusing on global challenges. It must have taken you around the world. Uh, uh, of course. So um, a large amount of my my work at the moment is also on sustainable international development. Um, so I, I have projects, for example, in the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, where we're looking to develop uh, renewable energy systems with a longer life. Um, so you asked about storage earlier, and batteries have an enormous part to play, um, at, particularly in developing countries. So if you look at the continent of Africa, they're heavily reliant on lead-acid batteries, um, and then, for example, if we look at Nigeria, Nigeria is a target to install 30 gigawatts of solar energy by 2030. This is a fantastic target uh, and very important, but that installation will require initially 40 million lead-acid batteries. Um, if those lead-acid batteries aren't treated properly, this amount of waste over that product lifecycle could easily go into the hundreds of millions of lead-acid batteries. These batteries aren't currently recycled um, or they're recycled through the informal sector in Africa, which means basically somebody takes a hammer to a battery, they leach the acid to the ground and they take the valuable, valuable lead. This has obvious impacts on people's health. So we need to develop a circular economy approach where somebody may lease a battery as part of a renewable energy system. It creates jobs um, and also then we remanufacture those batteries, prevent the impact on human health and those associated problems, um, and sort of mitigate some of these um, factors that are, that are approaching and problematic. You've done some work in India as well. 
Do you want to tell us about that? Um, yeah, so I'm part of uh, the Sunrise project, which is looking at developing um, re- renewable energy solutions for rural India. Um, and and in, it's nice, actually. So it has synergies with some of my work in Africa, but it's, it's different environments and and um, things like that. And so this is part of a India UK consortium of academics, um, and we will look to actually install, so not just develop technology, but install buildings in India that incorporate photovoltaics and uh, energy positive and things like this. But it's important that we don't forget um, society in all of this, of course, and that we engage with people in rural communities in India for what technology they want, what what they want the power, what would benefit their lives. This isn't a case of us saying, this is what we think you should have and this is what's useful. We need to to involve the community and make it a partnership. And that's part of sustainable development. Um, sustainable development historically hasn't worked very well all over the world because people dictate what they think the solution to problems is rather than involving the, the community and looking for solutions that way. Um- Places like India in particular, obviously very vibrant, exciting places to work. Do you have a, a favourite country overseas that you've worked in and why? Oh, that's a very good question. I think um, if I could pick a continent, the continent of Africa. So I, I've done projects through Zambia. Um, so I, I've travelled to Zambia for the last three, four years. I'm working in local schools and installing photovoltaics. So this summer, actually, I installed a... Um, as part of a team, we installed um, an aquaponics center to allow a school to grow plants and vegetables, to grow fish and harvest fish, um, all powered by renewable technology. So we can teach people about the benefits of renewable technology. And obviously then we're supplying the school with food and a sustainable source of income, if you like. So I think working in Africa, um, it just has a sort of magical feel about it. I don't know how to describe it, but I'm always happy when I'm working in Africa. I think it's it's just the people. They're so, so vibrant and have such a positive outlook on life, despite sometimes working and living in very difficult um, circumstances. You probably know this is coming, but what do you say to the critics who uh, will say that there is something uh, a bit hypocritical about jumping on an aeroplane to talk to people about sustainability all over the world? Uh, of course, and it's something that... Um, academics now need to think about uh, if they weren't already. So I I think the majority of people do think about their travel. There is still um, great value in face-to-face meetings and not becoming insular in our research. Research is global and we need to accelerate um, advances in science to, to, to sort of meet the problems that we face. That being said, we can think about sustainable ways of travel and we can think about, again, do we have the technology uh, available to us where we may not need to travel, um, but we can have a virtual meeting and things like this that may sort of avoid the need to release all this carbon? So we're, we're not immune, but we need to just debate um, and have this internal thought of whether this the outputs are worth it or not. Because I assume you think people should fly less. I, I, I do indeed. Um, I, I, I think people generally should think about sustainable choices. Um, This has been a sort of a great media interest recently um, where people 
it seems like we attack people for making sustainable choices based on some of their other choices. So, for example, Lewis Hamilton has been attacked in the media for for promoting a vegan lifestyle despite having enormous carbon um, problems associated with the industry. But I think actually if everybody just makes some sustainable choices in their life, that's a good first step. And and hopefully that leads to um, more sort of systemic um, societal change. So we should always encourage people to make those steps, regardless of other factors. And we should just think and debate about things internally. Is it really a case, I'm not talking about you in particular, but actually with academics or maybe even celebrities, that what they're really saying here is, it doesn't matter if I do this and do lots of flying or promote lifestyles, because I have a platform to actually make the change. So it's fine for me to go and fly all over the world, uh, but people shouldn't be taking, you know, twice yearly holidays to Spain or whatever? Uh, well, I, I think people need to, to think about it. They need to look at other options. Um, I, I also think that often we put all of these choices onto people rather than systems. So why aren't we demanding um, infrastructure changes in, in society where train travel becomes financially um, viable compared to fly-in? So, I mean, of course, I could take a train to Spain. Um, it may be very expensive and I may not, be able to afford that or people may not be able to afford that so we need sort of to make suitable choices um and suitable sorry suitable alternatives available to people and that comes comes from the top as well quite often we put pressure on consumers and people to change we also need our leaders to lead and to show a way forward um and things like tax reliefs for the aviation industry we need to think about these we, we need our, our leaders to say um there's a problem here. I shouldn't be able to fly from Cardiff to London cheaper than I can take a plane, uh, a train. That that shouldn't be the society we live in. But it is, unfortunately, at the moment. So we need affordable, sustainable transport as well. And that comes from, from the top, I think. You've talked about some of the organisations that you've worked with, Sunrise being one. Which other groups of people or academics have you collaborated with? Um, so I'm also part of uh, what's called the Specific Project, which is based here in Swansea. Um, we we have uh, numerous, I think, over 50 partners um, with industry and academia in the UK. So, of course, we work quite heavily with Tata Steel. We work with glass companies, um, building companies. So anywhere where we can put photovoltaics, um, we tend to engage with companies, of course. Um, we work with other academic groups across the UK, so Imperial College, um, we collaborate quite a bit with Imperial College, Bath University, Oxford, and things like this. People might be listening to you, young people, uh, who think your work's very important. Um, and obviously there are lots of young people who think your work is important. How would you encourage them to get into your profession? Um, so I, I, I think we, of course, need more people in the STEM subjects, so science, maths, and engineering. Um, there's going to be lots of jobs and skills required for the renewable energy sort of revolution, if you like, electrical engineers, material scientists, chemists, physicists. So um, there's lots of topics across um, a broad range of science, engineering, and mathematical subjects. So just my main advice to young people is to do what really drives you, um, to what inspires you to do your best, if you like. Um, so from my career, I, I went through my chemistry degree um, in Swansea where I was, I would say, an average student. I was doing okay. 
Um, I wasn't particularly interested, but I was always better at science than everything else. And then in the fourth year of university, I was given a research project. And having my own research and be able to, to sort of develop something myself and have that develop my interest, it just it sort of switched me on as a scientist. All of a sudden, I became you know, so engaged with the topic. I was reading around topics. And, and that's the moment for me where I really thought, this is for me. This is what I, what I want to do. So also for, for younger people, don't worry if you don't have that yet. You need to find out really what you want to do. And, and when you find that spark of something you, you want to do, it'll, it'll all make sense, I think. We could probably do a podcast on academics who feel quite average until they come across a project that they that they love. But uh, for the meantime, thank you very much, uh, Matthew. If you want to find out more about Gavin and Matthew's research, you can visit their staff profiles at Swansea University's College of Engineering webpage or visit www.specific.eu.com or rce.cymru. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. In the next episode, we're joined by Dr. Nigel Pollard to talk about his research into the damage and protection of heritage sites in modern conflict zones. That's all from us for today. Thanks for listening and thank you again to our guests, Dr. Matthew Davis and Dr. Gavin Bunting. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. I'm Sam Blaxland and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.